think of myself as a custodian, you know, because collecting, it seems like such a colonial concept. But I think if I'm taking care of works and preserving works for the next generation, I'm a custodian because it's like when I'm gone, somebody else is going to need to take yeah. care of it. Welcome to Collect Wisely, an ongoing series of podcasts in which we sit down with people who care deeply about art to discuss how they're using the medium to push boundaries and challenge the status quo. In this episode, we're speaking with John Gray, one of the co-founders of the Bronx-based collective Ghetto Gastro. Founded in 2012, Ghetto Gastro is a cooking advocacy collective that ignites conversations about race, class, and inclusion via the medium of food. The collective is committed to feeding, inspiring, and growing young entrepreneurs in the Bronx. Collect Wisely is an ongoing series of interviews with collectors and individuals from around the world in which we question the nature of collecting and connoisseurship in the 21st century, and in doing so, hope to inspire a new generation of individuals committed to making a vital and meaningful investment in our common cultural future. In the third season of Collect Wisely, we bring you personal stories of individuals from different fields, some of whom are working at the intersection of art and activism. We delve into their passion for art, what drives them, and what changes they hope to inspire. My name is Sean Kelly, and I've had a gallery in New York since 1991. Welcome to you, John. It is my huge, huge pleasure to welcome you. You are a friend, uh, but you are an absolutely inspirational figure to me. Um, and somebody who I think is just doing the most extraordinary work. And for those of you who want to know more about John, um, there are some wonderful, John has given two TED Talks. There's also another wonderful iPod um, uh, broadcast that he's been, a podcast that he's been featured on. You can learn a lot about John. But today, particularly, I want to drill down on how your journey in the Bronx unfolded and how art has played its part in the really extraordinary story of, of yourself and Ghetto Gastro. So, John, when, when did you first become aware of the power of art and design and architecture and how it could impact your life? Um, I think I got it, honestly, you know. Um, my mother, when I was, she used to work on Fifth Avenue um, at John Atkinson Hair Salon and we would hang out when I got out of preschool, when she was getting off of work, we'd go to the MoMA, we'd go to the Met, we'd grab food in the city from her friends that worked in the kitchens nearby. So it's always been this kind of amalgam of art and food. And then I went to an alternative kindergarten. I went to an alternative school called Central Park East in um, East Harlem, in Spanish Harlem, El Barrio. And it was very, um, like, a liberal artsy kind of curriculum like I learned how to read late but I knew how to draw <laughs> and make food like early and we called our teachers by their first name so super progressive and and, and I, what, read, I read that you actually used to be encouraged the kids were encouraged to cook in class right 
Yeah, yeah, at least in at least in that school. In that school. Um yeah, we, we used to make like our lunch. Like it was like a group activity. So when you were I mean, what were you seeing at MoMA or the museums that you were going to with your mum that was that was particularly getting you excited? Or were there things you were not seeing that were that that were obvious to you? You know what? At that age, to be honest, I can't I can't even remember what I was seeing. I just remember being around art and being in space and going to the 92nd Street Y for after school and like making these cookbooks and doing these illustrations for the cookbooks. Like I remember I did the illustration for Ants on the Log, which was basically just celery with peanut butter and raisins or cranberries. And then like <laughs> just just making like a real crude drawing for that, like at the age of six. I like vividly remember that. But I think um, my affinity from art is also just from being in my grandmother's house and she always had art around like um, portraits of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, like like vivid, vivid. I always saw black figures in our home, you know. So were there, were there, were there people in the family who were artists or creative? My, um, my aunt Akai was super creative, but she was more on the poetry side. And a lot of times when I think in black culture, like Arthur Jaffa mentioned, like it's a visual culture and a lot of that visuals, the visualization of the culture come, comes across in how we dress, right? Because I also remember growing up not really being allowed to have people come to the house, especially if my mother was not there. She's like, yeah, I don't want anybody in my house. So it wasn't, it wasn't like the way you could kind of show your flair and your creativity, it wasn't necessarily in the home, but it was like, how do you present outside of the home? So you were born in the 80s. 86, yeah. Right? Um, not exactly the easiest time for the Bronx. Nah. Where does this burning passion and commitment for the Bronx come from? I mean, it really is amazing that somebody, you have had so much success, you and your colleagues with Ghetto Gastro are so successful. You have a platform, a, a worldwide platform. You could do anything you wanted with it, go anywhere you want, and yet you avowedly are committed to staying in the Bronx and lifting up that community. Where does that passion come from? I think the initial seed probably sparked from like toxic male ego and just going places and everybody <laughs> talking about Brooklyn this, Harlem that. And I'm 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 almost as much from Harlem as I am from the Bronx, but I just I didn't really see many people putting the Bronx on their back, especially in the realms that I was able to traverse, you know, in art, fashion, music. And and then I, I just thought like we weren't appreciated for our contribution to the, the global the global fabric of culture when you think about these monumental movements like hip hop for one, or salsa, thinking about street art aesthetics and how, how the Bronx played a role in that in the early days. So I wanted to just kind of shed light on that and, and make sure that we got our roses. You know, it's so interesting because we're leaving out a big chunk of your CV here, right? I mean, <laughs> there are opportunities if you want to delve into John's background and, figure, and, and you can find out a lot more about him. But we're leaving out a big chunk of, of that CV because I want to concentrate on the art. But one of the things that has shaped, perhaps shaped the environment and the issues that you've dealt with, I think, um, and, and confronted head on is the, what I would describe as the misuse of the word culture 
when we talk about drug culture, because, you know, the, the drug culture in America um, in the 80s has, has become so toxic, that programming has, bec has become so toxic. I mean, what, how do you react to the use of the word culture in the same sentence as that, as that concept? Well, you know, I, when, I, when I, I take it down to the root, like when you have the cult or, or to cultivate, right, which could be, it's funny, it could use, be used when we're talking about cult, culture as a whole, but also crops and agriculture, you know? So yeah. when, I, when I think about drug culture, and, and it just, for me, it just means nothing's really by mistake. Like, and I think about the war on drugs and how these, these drugs like crack cocaine and different things in, were, were injected into these communities with, along with the weapons. It's, it's definitely... Literally, it's literally injected. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Literally, figuratively, it's like, it's all, it's all a design to kind of oppress people in new and creative ways, you know? So your, your avenue out, or potentially out, but you didn't go out, but your avenue out of, of that youthful, tough moment was you went to FIT. So initially, it looked like it was going to be a fashion route, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and for me, I think that was like the low-hanging fruit in terms of how I was able to think about expressing creativity in a way that also could be lucrative in terms of I can make a living from, you know? And at that time, um, when I had caught a case, I was, before I caught my case, I was thinking about transitioning from the streets and I didn't know exactly what I would transi transition into, but I saw like this thing called streetwear kind of bubbling up and like a lot of this brands were kind of coming across like young startups and t-shirt brands. And I'm like, I'm going to the trade shows and I'm looking at these kids that felt like they were from the suburbs and never had a brush with the law. And when I think about streets, you think about street shit. So you think about the underbelly, you think about like gangster shit. So I was like, I'm really of that ilk and of that fabric. So I think I could really do the streetwear in a different in a different way, you know? How do you get from there to food? Well, food, I think I had this existential crisis at around the age of 25 where I had I had a lot of, I had a lot of money saved up from my prior engagements and that money was dwindling. And I had some small successes, but a lot of failures in the apparel and the schmata business, you know? So, so going through those things and then constantly having been defined since I was a teenager, because since I was 15, I was, take, I was financially stable, taking care of myself. And a lot of my self-image um, was attached to how, many, how much money I had in the bank or how much money I had access to. So as that started to dwindle, I was like, man, I don't even know what I care about besides money like what would i do so that, like, I that, always, that, point, I, that was very much part of your identity yeah yeah hell yeah hell yeah definitely and i was like i don't know what i would do i always thought it was like this idea it's kind of like how americans they're like oh yeah we're gonna work our whole life and then when we retire we can enjoy it but a lot of times you're not at the state to where you can enjoy it you know if you're retiring when you're 60 70 years old that's not like your your prime year to enjoy life i feel like so it's like, what I, what I was doing is I was giving my life to the hustle, thinking that when I hit a certain mark, that's when it was time to start enjoying it. And, you were going to retire just, at the age of 22. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I always wanted to retire in my thirties, but then, but then I was like, you know, what? What I had to think about, like, what do I enjoy? Because I, it wasn't like low hanging fruit for me to think about what I really cared about. And I was like, I thought about my joyous moments, and this is like months of soul searching. And I'm like, you know what? It's food. But I always rejected the idea of working with food or around food or in food because of like the numbers I heard from a business side, like the failure rates of restaurants in New York, right. the, the type of capital you need to start up and the, the, the way the cash flow works. And I was like, that's not appealing from a business perspective. But when I looked at what was around me, I had friends that were super talented and I was like playing around in this art fashion context. And I, I was like, you know what? I think this access and the opportunity in this in, in, in this intersection could be an interesting way to bring food, but also using food as a conversation for radical blackness and what does it mean to have the voice of the Bronx in the food context. So that, that was like the project. But in a way, I mean, in a, in a way, I would imagine that at that moment, the most obvious thing that you would have done would have been to open a restaurant, right? But yet, that's exactly what you didn't do. I've always rejected that idea. A lot of times I think it's because of the fear of commitment to one space and one concept. And like, we just wanted to be able to be fluid and experiment and then also stick and move. We wanted to use, this is the vehicle for us to see the world and, and bring and, and celebrate the Bronx in a global, global way, but then also take the things that we learn abroad and bring those ideas and techniques back home. So I guess in a way, if I was talking to you at that moment, the two things I would think would be obvious for you to have considered would have been opening a restaurant or in some way getting involved with some sort of food bank organization or some organization within the Bronx that was going to be using food in a very political way to empower people. Mm-hmm. But you, took, you and your colleagues took a very, very different direction. Can you, can you describe, I mean, was there a, you know, I, I'm interested in talking with you about this because, you know, food is art uh, and art is food, but you've somehow have managed to mine this intersection between the two. Was there a light bulb moment where, you know, the bulb went off and you go, this is it, this is the way forward? Well, I think, I think for us, it was really about, ghetto, ghetto gastro was an excuse for me and I, I, my colleagues as well to exercise and kind of co-mingle all the things that we were interested in. Like when, when we think about like food bank and food justice in the traditional format, yeah. for me, it doesn't seem fun. Like, you know, I want to have fun. And for us, it's also about like, how do we sneak the medicine into the Kool-Aid? So we wanted to create this platform that seemed appealing, you know, via our, our integration, the connection with the fashion, the art worlds, all of these sexy quote-unquote elite elite systems yeah. and also just have that that social social sculptural moment moment that my boy Hans Ulrich would say a la Joseph Boys of, of like having something called ghetto gas show colliding with like a Cartier right or doing these things in the south of France it's like taking the the word ghetto in the context of how people expect ghetto and just shifting the paradigm and shifting the definition of how people experience or they perceive what it means. So there are two incredibly important <clears throat> ideas embedded there that I love very much and I, I feel very strongly about. 
And I love the fact that you identified these and mined them early on. And you've talked about these uh, on different occasions. You've already mentioned, you've talked about Ghetto Gastro as being an organization for social, you know, a social sculpture, um, which is very much a Joseph Boyce, the great German artist, Joseph Boyce, um, idea of, of using art for change. Um, and he probably was the first person who talked about that. And, and, and I'd love to, to mind, you know, to drill down on that with you a little bit more. But you've also used another term that I, I love you for very much. And that is you've talked about your relationship to these elite, let's say, you know, very powerful elitist art world entities where there's a lot of money. And you've used the term Robin Hood. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I love this idea of this kind of guerrilla insurgency that goes in and takes from one quarter of the art economy and puts it back in a different place. It's very, it's very necessary because I think, you know, so many people value this proximity to wealth and like this proximity to whiteness and all, all of these things that people associate with the high life. And for me, like, like I said, I've been blessed. I think people value those things, especially if they haven't experienced them or if that's the only thing they experienced. But I've, I've been able, through my experience, to understand the value of, of playing both sides, you know, like being able to see where there's value in the streets and where there's value at the, in the elite systems and thinking about what can we take and borrow and, and how do we shift the conversation and share the resources. So being that like you said, like we took a guerrilla approach to insert ourselves in these worlds and bring, bring a certain flavor and aesthetic that they might not be as familiar with and cap capitalize on it in a way that we bring it back to the neighborhood. But a lot of it is more than just the actual capital, like meaning money and those type of resources, but it's also the, the cultural currency. It's like, all right, so if you, if you like might've graduated from Cornell, you have an MFA in art history at Yale and you work at Hauser and Worth or whatever, you'll probably look at the kid with the do-rag a little bit differently that you see on the train and not be so quick to prejudge them based on what you know from entertainment and other aspects of society. Because it's like we're bringing that same aesthetic to the Serpentine Gallery in London or a dinner with Cartier. Like, so it's just like really trying to psych people out of what they think is to be true. So I can see from your perspective, there's a kind of cheekiness attached to that, which is really wonderful and endearing. Um, do you think that flows in both directions? Do you think the art world is using that in, for its own purposes? Or do you think they're really committed to it? I mean, do you think that it's patronizing? Or do you think that, you know, that their enfranchisement of, uh, of Ghetto Gastro is is profound? You know what? I, I try not to be the intention police because like the only intentions I could truly be aware of are my own. So for me, it's like, they might just be hollering at Ghetto Gastro because they see that Michelle and me and Rick Owens like us. So it's, it's the hip thing that, to do and it feels, it feels contemporary, it feels like edgy. And that's fine because it's like, they're gonna pay for that license so that that, that renting of the as long culture. As you get what you want out of it. Yeah. Okay? yeah, so for me, and as long as there's respect, because the thing is like, we don't bend, we don't fold. It's like, if you come in for ghetto gastro, you're gonna get what Gets we give gastro. you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, we're gonna get what we give you. It's not gonna be like, 
oh, by the way, we want to um, do this fine china and can you make, can you make like a, what's the word? Can you make like an apple tartine for, and it's like, nah, like we're going to tell you what we're going to do. We're going to collaborate on a brief. Like, and of course it's a exchange, but this is how we bring in the flavor. You know, a lot of it is really just, it's very, it's patronage because people are paying for us to do what we want to do. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of times it's that. No, but it is, it is, it is real patronage in many respects because, I mean, we've collaborated together on projects and when, and, and when we have, it's like, you know, our, our attitude has been, we didn't invite you in to tell you what to do. It's like, you've got to tell us what to do, take it yeah. over and run with it. And that's when it becomes fun actually is when you let go. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's like inviting somebody into your kitchen to cook, right? Yeah, you and, just got to let them do their thing. It's like... Do their thing, right? Okay, so we got the food. We got the food. We got food the food. For <laughs> and I love the going back to the root of cult, cultivate, which is to grow, and then we get to culture. Okay, so we can make those connections. Uh, where does the art start to kick in more for you, John? Because we've talked over the years about wanting to invite artists into your kitchen in a way, wanting to collaborate with artists with Ghetto Gastro, but also wanting to almost have a, a kind of cultural center uh, in the Bronx, which I know has come to fruition because you've got a project going on up there called Labyrinth 1.1, 1. 1. 1, mm -hmm. uh, which is about to become 1.2, I understand. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, where does the specific hookup with the artists come? Well, a lot of it's organic because even before I was doing Ghetto Gastro, I think being in fashion and just moving around and just being interested in like art, architecture and aesthetics and space, like the making of space and what, what that means, especially in the context of blackness and, and how that, what, what, like how, 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 how that relates. And I think just in a spirit of collaboration and partnership, it's a collaboration of the dope way to exchange, right? I might not be able to go into a gallery and, buy a $400,000 Rashid Johnson piece. But it's like, if we like each other and we divide, like, let's create, let's co-create something. Like, if, if you value what we do and we value what we do, like, we don't have to exchange currency or, or, or money as the only form of currency. It's like another means of bartering and collaborating that, that we enjoy. And I think I, I had a deep interest in art because I think in art is also a lot of cultural extraction, right? And, and what I notice is like, when you have these artists from different communities, right? They could get with a hotshot gallery. Most of their collective base probably doesn't look like them, right? So it's, it's always this, just like, our, just like our client base typically doesn't look like us. You know, so it's always this idea of performing and how do we reduce that? And how do we also keep some of this cultural cap capital in our community because if the, the art is constantly being extracted from other communities, it doesn't, it doesn't really reinforce. Like that one artist might be okay, but how does the community rise together as, like how do all tides rise? And when I look at the music industry, it's like a model of that. When you think about who makes the art versus who really profits gener generationally from the art, it's not the maker or the people or the place oh. where the makers come from. So it's like, how do we think about that and shift that? So, so that, that's where a lot of my collection, my, my, my theory and how I collect comes from. And also I, I've tried to put a, a focus on black women and women co of color 
whether the, the, they're the figures in, in the paintings or they're the artists that create the works, just because I want to be surrounded by who's always supported me, and that's Black women. You know, I'm raised by women. <laughs> do, you, do you think of yourself as a collector at this point? You know what? It's, it's, I have a weird relationship. I, I think of myself as a custodian, you know, because collecting, it seems like such a colonial concept. But I think if I'm, if I'm taking care of works and preserving works for the next generation, I'm a, I'm a custodian because it's like when I'm gone, somebody else is going to need to take yeah. care of it and preserve it. So no, this, is something, this is something people talk to us about on Collect Wisely a lot, actually. And it's a thread that I like that we've teased out of, the, of, of collectors is, you know, that notion not of acquisitiveness or colonization of the artist, but more of husbanding. The art, you know, husbanding the work. And the idea of husbanding work really is to do with farming. It's to do with growing and it's to do with looking after and nurturing something. So it's, it's, it's nice to hear you thinking of it, you know, particularly thinking of it in those terms and pushing back on the word, word collecting because it's, it, it's a very subtle but super important uh, definition, I think. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're thinking about the people that that the work is from, you know, when you think about the transportation of bodies for labor and collect, like, like it's just it could be problematic language and a problematic way to approach the act, you know. Well, look, the whole history of farming around the world, in whatever culture you come from, uh, there is always at some point slavery or serfdom involved. Uh, and there is still an inequity involved in the economics of food, uh, which is which is profound and political, right? So if you come up against, if you butt up against food anywhere you go in the world, you're going to butt up against the political. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Whether it's the cultivation of said food and how are the people that are doing the work and tilling the land being taken care of or the history of it, like, you know, like, my, my ancestors came here through bondage to till the land and, and build this economy um, or, or just the access to the finished goods. You know, when you think about the different types of crops that are subsidized and how that food ends up being the high fructose corn syrup laden things that end up in where I live. And like, we don't, we don't necessarily have an abundance of Swiss chard and, fresh, fresh heirloom tomatoes. Like, I don't, I don't see that in my local grocery. Right. You know, I see a lot of, I see a lot of, like, the, the fresh produce aisle is very small, whereas everything else that's in boxes, it, it's the majority of the supermarket. So. Which is uh, ironic, given that the Bronx is home to one of the biggest uh, food distributor, dis distribution networks in the world. Um, Absolutely. So... You know, that, that's a crazy concept that you have this, like one of the largest food distribution, fresh food distribution hubs in the world is in the Bronx. And, uh, you know, you would speak to this more eloquently than me, but it's probably one of the least advantaged communities in America from a point of view of fresh food. Absolutely. It's crazy because it's like, like you mentioned, largest food distribution center of its kind in the world, you know, from produce to, 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 um, meats and the fish market is, is out here as well. But then also just an abundance of food insecure neighborhoods and districts. 
um, because of food apartheid. And it's like by design. And, and what is the cherry on top is that a lot of these communities deal with the high asthma rates from the fossil fuel, fuel yeah. fossil fuels that come from the truck traffic, which comes from the distribution of the food that we don't have access to. You don't have access to. There's passing your front door every day. Correct. Correct. So, John, you know, you're the first person I wanted to talk to as part of, you know, a new Collect Wisely initiative that I want to focus on over the next few months because, you know, the uh, look, there's a big issue here in the room with us, right? We're 63 days out or whatever from the election. Um, The country is in a mess. Uh, You know, we're in the middle of COVID. Um, The economy is in desperate trouble. Um, We're going to see homelessness on a scale that we've probably never seen it on before. We've got Black Lives Matter. We've got civil civil a civil conversation being attempted we've got the manipulation of the black lives matter moment right by the powers that be using it for their own ends um we cannot ignore uh even you know within the art community which uh, we've talked about the elitist aspect of the art world but we can't ignore that this affects all of us how should we be thinking about about this moment uh and what we in the art world, in the associated cultural worlds, food, architecture, design, what can we be doing to man the barricades in this moment to, to make sure that there is change? Well, I think, I think the work definitely speaks to the time, but also when we think about who are the patrons of, of the art world and of these institutions and are people willing to have these uncom- un- uncomfortable conversations with people that might be socially liberal but but fiscally conservative and, and would like vote for someone like Trump to to save a couple million on their tax return. So so it's it's like having these real conversations and like not skirting through it and and really like addressing pat- the patriarchy, right? So it's like up to me when I'm in a group of fellas that are talking in a way that's using improper language, whether it's regarding the queer community or regarding women or or like I have to I have to be able to run it out and, and enlighten my brothers to be like like look this is why this is problematic so I think the same goes for these systems and if we're talking about white supremacy so it's like for someone like you when you're dealing with a collective to have that tough tough conversation or a colleague or whatever like because I think it's I think it's it's it has to be it has to be a it can't be just a blanket solution like I think we have to approach it. Um, it's hand-to-hand combat, but also I think it's like getting it's like getting people in, in the community to vote, getting people to to be active on a national level, on a local level, and just understanding like that these things really create and change and change the world we live in. You know, because a lot of times people don't feel like their vote counts. It's like I can't make a difference. It's just me. You know. But but you know I I feel like the only way that we can make those conversations happen is it's amazing how entrenched people can become in the abstract and when they sit with each other in a room and break bread to take it back to a to an eating metaphor at the table at the hearth and you break bread with people it's amazing how much those boundaries and barriers can be can be brought down yeah, yeah. It, it feels like the activism really has to be on a very human level yeah like like i said because because 
we're social creatures, right? So we have to get next to each other and socialize and, and give each other perspective and context. So I guess easily, it's easy to get caught up in the media and, and paint a blanket picture and, and, and create a us versus them mentality, you know? But it's very, very difficult to do that right now. It's difficult to socialize. With you COVID, and I can't yeah. be in the, na- in the same room. I mean, we can talk to each other via Zoom or some different medium, but we can't be in the same room together right now, whereas normally we'd have sat at a, a table and had this conversation and we'd have had dinner and we'd have had a bottle of wine and we'd have hashed it out, right, uh, as we've done. Um, how much does that play into... How much does that enable the playbook of separating us and, and weakening us, do you think, or doesn't it matter? Because we've got this media. Well, yeah, I think, I think humans will always find a way to stay connected, even if we're like figuratively, um, physically, physically spaced apart. But it does, it does present challenges, right? Because like you can't gather in mass. Like you said, you can't have those, those long dinners of debate and discourse because it's, it's, it's a less impersonal medium, you know? Like, I'm not right up on you. It's like you have this barrier of the screen. So, so it does present challenges, but I think the good thing about creativity is figuring out how to get around or, or create new worlds that can, can combat some of these issues, even because even, there will always be some challenge, right? So One of the things, you, you mentioned it even in this uh, brief conversation, um, one of the things uh, I love about talking with you about these ideas is you've talked about the table and how important the table is and how important sharing and food and breaking bread is, right, in all of our cultures. But you've also talked about the performative aspect of, of, what, we, of what you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I work with one of the most important performance artists in the world and have been involved in in that environment up close and personal for over three decades and you know i think when we think of great chefs like chefs at noma and i know one of your co-founders has worked at noma or we think of fernan adria Mm -hmm. they we do think of these rather sort of um dynamic uh performative characters how important how important for you has been the leveraging of this idea of uh, performance for ghetto gastro. Well, yeah, I think I think when you when you create a dynamic hospitality setting, there's always a level of theater or theatrics, right? Or or keeping people engaged throughout these. Like when you talk about normal or like El Bulli, those are like three to four hour dinners, and it's not natural. You have to really like who you're having dinner with, <laughs> or or you just have to be in awe at every course that comes out. So I think it's a level, a level of performance that has to go into keeping people engaged and interested and keep keeping the food tasting good, you know? But, but, you but, know, for, but, go but, but, but that, you know, what's interesting about that is the idea of four-hour dinner to most people is very daunting. And we were in Mexico together and we were talking about Oaxacan cuisine and how simple that cuisine is in many respects. But the sort of performative is hidden, isn't it? Because the, the mole could take three or four weeks yeah, i'm gonna say it's so complex it's like it's it's i feel like mexican cuisine like when you're thinking about mole and it's it's super complex like but it's 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 still in a sauce that feels it doesn't feel 
as complex as the steps that went into and when you're thinking about ingredients whether it's like ant larvae or crickets and like this cuisine is crazy you know but and, and, and i and i know that you are somebody who's super interested in sort of uh, you travel a lot anyway but i know you're somebody who's super interested in bringing the sort of diaspora of food to the table oh yeah definitely definitely especially like the African diaspora and, and thinking about like, how do we connect with the land that we were stolen from? Like, so it's like searching, sometimes a lot of what we're doing is searching for home and trying to find these similarities and all of these things through the food. So a lot of it is like a journey back to the continent and, and looking at how Brazil has feijoada, right? You have the Caribbean, Afro-Caribbean, when you, even you go to Cartagena and they do their coconut rice one way. You go to Jamaica, it's rice and peas. You go to you go to the Dominican Republic, Puerto Rico, it's rice and beans. So it's like figuring out the connective tissue and how they've been remixed depending on the, the ecosystem or the, the the culture that colonized these said islands and the different inspirations and, and, and bits of culture that were dropped in, but preserving the roots of it. So a lot of it is like a, a journey home for us. John, you could, I could look at your journey so far which I, I really is completely inspirational and your colleagues i could look at that journey and say you know oh it's just because john's such you know he's such an exceptional individual right but i mean in 30 years time what is going to be the legacy of ghetto gastro in the bronx and is it going to be possible for a 10 year old john gray uh, to emerge and change change the narrative again. I mean, what's what are you going to leave behind from Ghetto Gastro in the Bronx that's going to make it possible for kids who have that vision that you have uh, to 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 change the dynamic, to change the cultural discourse? Well, well, hopefully um, the goal is like when we think of Ghetto Gastro, it's like we like it to be akin to. I, I use Bauhaus. I need to find a different reference that's not Eurocentric. <laughs> but but we want it to be akin to like a movement that people could borrow ideology. And it's not just for the Bronx. But of course, we want to leave remnants in the Bronx. Because the only thing unique about me is that I got a lot, I had a lot of luck and got a lot of chances, right? Is I have you friends of mine. But, but you made your own luck. Yeah, that's, that's, that, that's the truth. That's the truth. But I also I have friends that got caught up in jams way less severe than I did and have done jail time behind that. Like both of my brothers have spent over 10 years in jail. You know, I was able to escape and, and exercise potential after having that shock. Like, oh shit, I'm not, I'm not really trying, I'm not really built to be in jail for a decade. Like, let me make use of this time that I have and, and also putting the weight of my family and the culture on my back. That's what, that's what drives me. But, but it's not just for the Bronx. It's like, I hope I hope a collective or a youth in the favelas in Brazil could see the work and just understand. For me, it's like understanding and it's not just changing the minds of people outside of my community. It's also hopefully helping my community unlearn some of these these false narratives that we've been told, like of us being less than, of us not having value in our ideas and our IP and all of these things. It's like, nah, this shit is valuable. And let me show you why it's valuable, and then let's keep reinforcing and, and regenerating. Like just like regenerative farming, it's like how do we regenerate 
the soil in the neighborhood and cultivate the talent in a way that it reduces brain drain and like you could keep this going for generations. Yeah, and, and also the, all, all of those talented individuals don't leave the Bronx. They, they believe they can stay in the Bronx and actually reinvest and kind of have their futures there, not somewhere else. That's the idea. And, and I'm trying to lead by example, you know, even though I'm you, tempted to get a, you know, to get a holiday home in, a, in, a, in, a, in Hudson. You were talking Hudson about is calling. Hudson is calling, but <laughs> well, it's still connected to the mainland. Farm to table thing. So <laughs> you were talking about leaving, but you haven't left. You're still there doing it. And and during this pandemic, uh, I you know you produced. I mean, it's, it's it's incredible to me to think about the platform that you've built. You produced a T-shirt, a single T-shirt that sold out in thirty minutes or something crazy. Right? I couldn't even get one. Uh, and how much money did you raise that you put back into your community for food to feed people? Well, we spread it out between us and our friend Lauren Halsey in South Central. So we raised over a hundred grand. We left it open for we left it up online for like three days, and then we closed the shop. But we raised over a hundred grand after all the expenses to make the shirts and whatnot. And Lauren Halsey, uh, you know, she's an artist. Um, yep. She's been doing the Summer Everything Community Center where she's pushing out food every weekend to the community of Watts and South Central. And with us, we partnered with Rethink and La Mirada in the Bronx. And we've right. been doing about a thousand meals a day, um, four to five days a week via La Mirada and Rethink to get yeah. to the community. Amazing. So, well, thank so, you. Nah, thank, thank you for the support. And, you know, we'll, we'll, we're going to keep doing it with the pandemic showed us was like we can't we can't make this community activism a side dish it really has to be the entree and it's difficult when you're traveling the world executing commissions and you know trying to trying to keep keep the momentum and keep things rolling keep keep your, your team paid and whatnot well it's but, also it's also very difficult when you've got a president who's trying to divide us and stop us collaborating instead of is, encouraging us to collaborate this is this is this is this is very true. So you know, so, certain people listening to this may be wondering: Have we been talking about art? I think we've been talking about art because uh, food is an art form, and I love the activism that you brought to the table. Literally brought to the table, um, and we didn't talk so much about the works in your collection, but we we can talk about that as well a little bit. But there is one question. Um, I always ask everybody who, who's kind enough to come in, come on and talk to me, um, and that is, uh, if there was one artwork in the world that you could live with in perpetuity, doesn't have to be available, it can be anything anywhere, you could say the Sistine Chapel, it's fine. Um, is, there, is there a single artwork that's particularly inspirational to you that you hold dear in your heart? All right, I'll talk about I'll talk about an artwork that I have that gives me so much inspiration. It's a um, portrait of Thelma Golden that um, Amawako Bafu did from Ghana, and it it kind of it's like you know like Christians they used to have the bracelets that were like WWJD like what would Jesus do, but I, I call my painting like the what would Thelma do. So when I look at her on my way in and on my way out, like. To make sure I'm, I'm doing, I'm staying on point and keeping and keeping, keeping sturdy. But I think if it was something that can I just say on that point that that's a lovely connection between us as well because Thelma, who is such an inspiration to all of us and such an extraordinary human being, um, 
you know, the director of the Studio Museum Harlem um, gave, they, the Studio Museum Harlem gave Kehinde um, his first break, Kehinde Wiley, who, who I work with, I'm fortunate enough to work with. And it was Kehinde, to no small extent, who championed Amarfa's work. So that's Absolutely. a lovely kind of circular reference. All, I, did, I didn't know about it until you said it. So. Yeah, it's all, it's all full circle. And I think I probably, I was really, I love um, the David Hammond's body paintings. I, I love the one with the flags in it. It was yep. one that he had in the Soul of a Nation show yep. that just moved me deeply when I saw it. And I think, I think. Well, David's a, a great artist, and that brings us very neatly back around to the Hudson Eye because David has a, a he has a project, a, a new project at the Hudson Eye at the moment. So I'm I'm sitting just below it. Oh, uh, amazing! Nicely enough. So, John, I I cannot thank you enough for coming on Collect Wisely. I think we just we just started. I mean, I could talk to you for hours. Yeah, this, is, this is like part one. Like, we could definitely do more. <laughs> we could do about eight, eight, eight segments to this. Uh, next time uh, we do this, we'll talk a bit more about art and a little, little less about food, but I think it's really an important topic. And I want to thank you so much for, for being you and for doing what you do and for being a friend and an inspiration uh, to me and for all the work that you are doing with the connective tissue of food and art. It's really great to have you have you uh, in our corner working there. Uh, thank you, and just thank you for sharing the platform and us being able to have this this discourse publicly. Like, we'll, we'll, we'll keep going. It was just yeah. the beginning, for sure. We just got started. Thanks, John. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Collect Wisely can be found on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Overcast, and Google Play. You can also find our episodes on our YouTube page. Just search Sean Kelly Gallery. Please be sure to subscribe to get the freshest episodes when they release. And if you really like the show, please give us a review or drop a comment. Or you can email us at info at sky.com. You can also follow the Sean Kelly Gallery at Sean Kelly NY on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Cheers! Thank you.